episode 130 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. My name is Casey Swift, and I fly the EA-18G Growler for the U.S. Navy. Got a love for photography and aviation, so that's kind of how I try to combine the two. What is going on, Avi Nation, and welcome back to episode 130 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I am your host. Today, I'm talking with Casey Swift. Casey is a growler pilot out in the Pacific Northwest. He went to the United States Naval Academy. It might seem that everything is just going great and has always gone great, but Casey and I have some really good conversation today. We talk about kind of the downs of going to the Naval Academy and the struggles that he has had to get the great job and the great aircraft that he's able to fly now. So this is a great episode. It is one that I'm really proud of. And uh, I've been talking to Casey a while. We've been trying to get this linked up forever, but we finally have it going. I'm on day eight of eight, currently in Napa, getting ready to go fly to LAX and then airline home. Somehow I talked them into getting me a first class seat. So uh, that's pretty sweet. <laughs> but I won't keep you guys any longer. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Share with all your friends. Leave us a review and make sure to follow us on Instagram. Baby Nation, without any further ado, here's Casey Swift. Casey, what's going on, man? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Thanks, Justin. I'm glad we finally were able to get some time blocked out for the two of us. It's been been a while. It has been a while. Uh, it has been a long time. We've been trying to do this for <laughs> maybe over a year now, I think. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Uh, it just goes to show how hard it is to to get a pilot schedule to match up and then, uh, then get it to work out. So it's pretty interesting. That's so true. All right, Casey. So I want to know more about why you got into aviation. Kind of uh, what interests me the most is is the beginning. Some people are with aviation families. Some people are aviation for the first time. They come from military families. Uh, talk a little bit about your inspiration and when you kind of knew and even wanted to become a pilot in the first place. Sure. Uh, that's a pretty easy question. It's going to sound kind of cliche, though, because honestly, ever since I can remember, I've wanted to be a pilot. And I mean, yeah, I went through the phase growing up as a kid where I was like, oh, being a, a train conductor would be cool as I'm playing with my Brio train set or uh, went through like the garbage man phase where I thought it'd be cool to hang off the back of a garbage truck. Uh, that didn't last too long. Um, but honestly, the the love for flying has always been there. It's always been something that I've wanted to do. And I've been really lucky in that. Um, fact because there was never ever a question about what I wanted to do with my life or where I wanted to go. I knew what I wanted to do from an early age and I wasn't really going to let anything stop me from doing that. So I think the best parts of me, or sorry, I shouldn't say that, the best parts of vacations with my family was going to the airport. I didn't really care about the vacation itself so sorry mom and dad for the disney trips but uh i didn't really care about mickey mouse i cared more about being at the airport but they knew that um and yeah i would just be uh i would actually want to get to the airport three hours early just like all the dads out there like to do right um and just have my nose pressed up against the glass looking at all the planes and Getting on the plane, I'd always try and poke my head inside the cockpit and see what the pilots were doing. And obviously, this was pre-9-11, so I'd always be waiting in the back and for the uh, 
you know, pilots to open up the flight deck and they'd allow kids to walk up there and go check it out and get your little plastic wings. And I would save every one of those things and go back to preschool or elementary school and I'd be wearing them, wearing them on my chest and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, never ever wanted to do anything else really besides fly airplanes. Were you the first uh, pilot in your family or were there, was there like a history of aviation in your family at all? No history of aviation in my family at all. I'm actually from a family mostly of, uh, of law enforcement. Okay. Um, yeah, my dad uh, was a police officer. My grandfather was a police officer. But my two grandfathers were both in the Navy, and then I had a great-grandfather who was in the Navy as well. Um, but kind of skipped a generation. But no flyers, first one here. What, what was it that drew you to aviation? Uh, was it just how cool everything was? Did you watch Top Gun as a kid, and you're like, I want to be like him? Or <laughs> what was it? The first time, it's funny you mentioned Top Gun, the first time that I saw that or even heard about it or saw a clip of it, we were in a store looking at getting a, a surround sound system for, for the house, for our living room. And they had Top Gun playing in their demonstration room. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Uh, they were doing one of the dogfighting scenes in the sound was amazing for sure, uh, but the visuals were also awesome. Uh, and then I remember going home after that, and or not not going home. I think we actually went to a, a video store, got a VHS, if you can believe that. What are those? Yeah, what's a VHS, um, man? <laughs> and then ended up watching that at home, and I'm pretty sure now I could recite that movie for you as probably any uh, – any naval aviator or even just a lot of aviators in general probably could. All right, we got an hour and a half. Go for it. Let's start right now from beginning to end. No, <laughs> Somewhere in the Persian Gulf yeah. or whatever it was, I forget. Uh, I got to watch it again now. Sorry. So you got to get ready for Top Gun 2, which keeps getting delayed by year by year. I know. I was super stoked for that to come out this summer. And now, you know, like many things, thank you, COVID-19. I guess we'll have to delay that. But uh, fun fact, I don't know if you know, they did a bunch of filming out in Washington for that, for some of their um, mountain flying sequences. So that was, uh, I mentioned just the other came out, but yeah. That's cool. When um, So obviously you mentioned history of Navy, law enforcement. You knew that you wanted to be a pilot very young. Did you know you wanted to be a Navy pilot or did you just want to be a pilot? And then later in life, it kind of was like, you know, Navy pilot's kind of cool. I could do that. That's a good question. Um, Growing up, all I wanted to do really was be an airline pilot. I thought that the uniforms looked cool. The pilots looked cool. Um, I liked the technology of the flight decks and the airplanes, and it just seemed like something that was really neat. Um, so that's kind of what attracted me to it. The the military thing came later, not too much later, probably in, in middle school when I was trying to figure out, you know, what do I actually want to do in aviation um, and how do I want to do it? Not necessarily um, what is my end goal, but kind of how can I have the most fun along the way doing it? And that's kind of when the, the military part popped up. What was Initially, it about the military? Um, I think I had a drive for public service a little bit with the 
background of my father and grandfathers and also my mother as a social worker. Um, my brother was in the military for a little while in the army and it was like public service has been in my family for a while. And so I was drawn to that and I thought if I could do that while also flying, that'd be pretty sweet. And also I knew that the military would train me to fly and on top of that, pay me to fly. But flying for me has always been something where I've told people if I could do it for free, I would. Uh, and I, I, I seriously would. Um, now that debts are paid off, you know, if I still had loans, I would be right. like, mm, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> How about you pay me a little bit and we can make this work? Yeah. That's yeah. When, so you knew in middle school that you wanted to be, you wanted to go in the military? Or that's when you kind of put yeah, it together? That's crazy. Right around like sixth to seventh grade, I'd say. That's when I started looking at the military options and then the service academies. Um, and like I said, I'm, I'm super lucky to have known that early enough uh, to recognize it and be able to prepare because it's really difficult if you're late in the game to start going in that direction. And that's kind of one of the things that it's a little difficult when I've got um, you know kids in high school that'll message me on social media, and they'll be like, "Hey, you know how do how did you become a pilot or how did you become a naval aviator?" And I'll tell them, you know, I went to the naval academy, and they'll be like, "Oh, you know, how did you do that?" And I'll kind of tell them the route and how it goes, and they'll be like, "Oh, I'm a I'm a senior in high school," and it's like. Uh, might be a little too late. I mean, there's a few other ways you could do it to to end up there, but it is a little bit later in the game. So yeah, you definitely early. Yeah, you definitely had the advantage of knowing what you wanted to do early. I had a, a really good friend in elementary school. I think it was like kindergarten or preschool. We had show and tell, and he was telling everyone he brought in a navy like fighter plane. He's like, I want to be a navy fighter pilot. And sure enough, this kid goes to the naval academy, comes a navy pilot. It's like everyone knew Gray <laughs> wanted to be a Navy pilot since he was like two years old. <laughs> but yeah. it's something, if you really want to go to the academy, I don't know how it is with the Army and uh, Air Force, but you really kind of need to know by like your freshman year that this is something you want to do because there's multiple things that you need to do to put forward to make sure that you can put yourself in the best best position possible to to get that slot and even get in the Naval Academy. That That's so true. Um, I'd say one of the biggest things is not just limiting yourself to one though, um, for me, I, I applied to all three. Um, obviously you got Coast Guard and Merchant Marine Academy, uh, as well, but, um, you know, like the, the big three, I guess you could say applied to West Point, applied to Air Force Academy, applied to the Naval Academy. And honestly, I didn't really want to go to West Point because it's mostly helicopters and it's mostly from what I understand, chief warrant officers that do a lot of the flying, which, Helicopters are cool, but uh, not really my cup of tea. So that one was kind of like, a, eh, I'll just do it in case. The Air Force Academy, that's actually what I wanted to do initially all up until probably my sophomore, junior year of high school. And then I, and then I shifted to wanting to go to the Naval Academy because I actually did a, a, um, like a weekend seminar thing at the Naval Academy. You can visit and you live with the midshipmen 
for a weekend, kind of see what they do. And I fell in love with the area in Annapolis, Maryland. I really think it's one of the most beautiful places in the country and kind of started veering more towards Annapolis. And then I had a, a track coach in high school who was in the army. He was a special forces guy. And he was like, Case, you know, you can land on a long runway for the rest of your life, but there's something about being a naval aviator that just has this whole other aspect to it. And I think you'd really enjoy that. Um, and he was right, but, uh, I mean, truth be told, and it's kind of weird naval aviator. I've, you can call it lucky. It depends who you talk to, but I haven't had to be a part of a squadron that is deployed on an aircraft carrier. It's kind of unique in the growler community. We've got boat squadrons, which as you would normally think are attached to an aircraft carrier. You do all the takeoff landings on the boat. And then you've also got expeditionary squadrons, which don't deploy on aircraft carriers. They deploy mostly on air force bases and it's a very air force style of living. So, with that, you're kind of giving up the, the thrill of taking off and landing on an aircraft carrier for, some may say, a better quality of life, living kind of the, the Air Force lifestyle. And that's kind of what made me want to go expeditionary was the quality of life. But um, don't get me wrong, taking off and landing on an aircraft carrier was definitely one of the most fun and rewarding things in my life. Um, but for me... Aviation is like uh, not necessarily how many times can I do something, but how many milestones can I check? So that's just kind of the way I look at aviation. Some guys are all about how many catch shots they can get, how many traps they can get. And it's cool. Like, you know, that's them. That's what drives them. But for me, I like to do kind of the, um, some may think of the, of the boring things like doing a trans pack or doing a trans land or doing a, you know, a trans con, like that stuff to me is cool, but everybody's different. So that's, that's, that's why I chose what I wanted to do. It's cool. You said that you're in it for more of the experiences. Cause even you go to the civilian side, everyone's in it to get that seniority number, which obviously is very important as it's been proven. Now, the better seniority you have, the least likely chance you have to be furloughed. And, but it's also okay to be in it for the experiences and not be so caught up in the seniority number. I know right now, like I just said, Senior number is king, but you want to have fun with your, your career. You want to have fun experiences. Maybe if you have a cool opportunity to go fly a cool PC-12 job or amphibious caravan, you know, like go take it, like go enjoy it. Yeah. But do know that there is this trade-off that you do. If you choose those experiences, you might be giving up that seniority number, but you just have to figure out what works best for you. What's the what's more beneficial out of your job, out of your livelihood, out of your life? Like what would make you happier at the end of the day? But it's cool to hear that other side point because a lot of people are just so focused on I want to be a triple seven captain at Delta and make this much money and live the life and go travel, you know, and get some nice new white balance or white <laughs> new balances. <laughs> white new balance yeah. with the uh, nice jeans to go with them. Absolutely. Blue wash jeans looking good. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, going back to your story a little bit. So I, you mentioned something about you living the the Air Force life. Is it true that the Air Force it has like a little bit of a better lifestyle than the other ones, at least the aviators? <laughs> I've heard that's the case, uh, but I don't know if that's true. I don't know if you're allowed to sit to, to say if they are or not, but geez, I don't know. Everyone, a lot of my, my coworkers and the squad of makes already kind of make fun of me for being an expeditionary guy and, and not being a boat guy. So 
I mean, they they'll they'll bash on the expeditionary squadrons until we do. Sometimes we'll do an exchange on deployment where we'll have one or two of our aircrew go out to the aircraft carrier, and one or two of their aircrew will come out and um, fly with us on land for a little bit. And it's funny that. Once they're hanging out with us, like, oh, this is awesome! Like, I would totally love to do this. But when they're when they're not with us or something like that, it's kind of we are a little bit of the, I guess, the recipients of of Air Force jokes. And like, you know, you're a naval aviator, but you don't land on a boat. I'm just like, I have before. I just don't choose to do it right now. Um, but I, I think I think the quality of life is a little bit better. So, um. We talk, one of the jokes is having, um, like what the problems are of expeditionary squadrons. And it's like, for us, it's like, oh man, the, uh, the Wi-Fi is down or, or first world this, problems almost. Yeah. Kind of like that. And the boat guys are just like, man, you don't even know what we're dealing with. I'm just, I'm just it's, a, it's a different lifestyle. And I think the quality of life is a little bit better, but. It could be completely subjective. There's some some people out there who really enjoy being on the ocean and um, living on a boat and just kind of focusing on themselves for however many months while they're out at sea with a couple um, of hundred guys. And girls. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, me? No, thanks. I'll, I, <laughs> I do like the Air Force kind of life. What um what was your experience like at the Naval Academy? So like I said, I had my buddy Gray who went to Naval Academy. I heard some stories off that. There's there's a lot of pressure on, on kind of is it your plebe year, your first year? Like that's like supposed to be the worst yeah. year of your life. But as it goes, it gets a little bit better and a little bit more enjoyable. But he told me some some terrible stories about how much pressure there is on some of these kids that come from small towns. They have parades that go there and they they realize that they can't they can't make it. And some of them either take their life or they drop out or some kind of crazy stuff like mm-hmm. that. Uh, what was your experience like at the Naval Academy? It was a very humbling experience. Uh, you could definitely say that. I learned a lot while I was there, uh, kind of about life in general. And looking back, I would I do it over again? I'm not, I'm not entirely sure on that because I've, I've tasted the outside world now. Um, but when you're there, you don't really know anything different. So it is definitely very difficult. You go in there your freshman year, and I mean, you start early. You start off with that plebe summer indoctrination. So just graduate high school, get a few weeks off, and then you're over doing your indoc, and then right into the academic year. And that first year, you know, you're under a microscope. It's really one of those things where no matter how well you do something, they're going to tell you you're not doing it well enough. And so you kind of just get used to that, but you're also taking all the advanced math, science courses that everybody has to take. And it's one of those things where you feel like you don't have enough time in the day to do everything, but it really helps you focus on time management. And it's more than just academics. You've got the military obligations. You've got the physical obligations with the sports and intramurals and all that other kind of randomness freshman year, you're not allowed to go out uh, unless it's a Saturday. You can go out on Saturdays from, I want to say it was noon to like 8 PM or something like that. And you had to be in uniform. And then your sophomore year, your youngster year, we called it. You could go out on Saturdays from noon to midnight. 
but he had to be in your uniform. Junior year, you could go uh, outside the academy on Saturdays and Sundays, and you could wear civilian clothes, and you could also have a car now, but you couldn't park it on campus. And then your senior year, you could go out Friday nights, Saturday, and Sunday, and you could have a car and park it on base. So it was like this gradual increase of relaxedness for with what you're able to do. Um, but it was very, very, uh, you know, regimented like freshman year, you'd have prior enlisted people there who used to be Marines and were, you know, coming back from deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. And they've seen combat time on the ground. And as a rule, as a freshman, you're not allowed to drink. Doesn't, doesn't matter if you're 21 or not. So you got these combat veterans who come over to commission as an officer and they're not allowed to drink and you're just, just kind of like man that's, that's, that's kind of weird so there's that piece of it but there's also the piece of it where aside from having your freedoms kind of restricted i mean it does help you um bond with your classmates and really develop that that camaraderie which people say is second to none from any other college or university you could go to. And I've got friends that I haven't talked to in a couple of years since we commissioned that I know I could call them up and be like, Hey, you know, this is going on. I'm kind of having a rough time. Can, can we talk or you know you want to hang out? And they'd probably just drop everything and make that happen. So there's that benefit to it, which I think is a little bit overlooked at times is yeah, you've got some freedoms taken away from you, but the flip side of that is you're going to develop the, most impressive relationships of your entire life. And I think that's true. Absolutely. It's Uh, crazy when you go through the toughest time of your life, who you go that through, you're always going to be bonded with them for the rest of your life. Like it doesn't matter if you want to see them for 20 years, you see them, you'll have a huge smile and you'll just have instant, like you said, like you'll feel comfortable. You have something to talk about. You can hang out. You can, you can just do anything because you guys went through some of the, probably you would say the worst either one year, two year, or even four years of your life together. And you're bonded forever because of that. (laughs) Yeah. And so then, you know, you get into the academic side and it's known as an, it's, it's known for its engineering and its sciences and stuff like that. They've got amazing programs and facilities to be able to use. And for me going in there, I was like, you know, I love aviation. I want to be a pilot. I'm going to do aeronautical engineering. And that was probably one of the worst decisions of my life. Um, cause I really was not as good at math as I thought I was. And I want to say the going into spring of my junior year, you know, I was on academic probation. I had a 1.67 GPA because I could just not get my mind around, oh, fluid dynamics, materials, engineering, and all this other stuff, which I like kind of scraped by the prerequisites. And then you get into the more advanced stuff. And I'm just like, man, this is kicking my butt. And one of the best things about these institutions is if you want to succeed and you want to commission, they will help you do that. So one-on-one time with professors, which I think is invaluable. There's no teaching assistance there. It's if you have a, if you're having a problem, you can go to the professor after hours and sit down and, you know, have them kind of teach you 
things that you may not be understanding, um, which is really cool. And so I would be with the prof- like with the professors all the time after class because this stuff was just not clicking for me. And it came to a point, you know, up in that junior year where I was like, all right, I think I need to make a course correction here. And as much as I don't like failing at things and I don't like quitting, like I need to change my major and do something that's a little bit more manageable because you know, I was in a, I was in a pretty, pretty dark spot there. You know, grades not going well, worried about getting kicked out of the academy. But I kind of just needed to swallow my pride and be like, all right, this isn't working. I'm going to make a change. And so I switched my major from aeronautical engineering to general engineering. And it was just like a night and day flip-flop of how things went. You know, I understood things a little bit better. Um, I felt better about my performance academically. And, um, you know, it was just massive change in quality of life once I, once I made that correction. And I think that's really important for some people to understand, especially because you don't need to have this technical aviation degree to be a pilot. You know, some of the best pilots I know are history majors. Some of the best leaders I know are English majors. You know, it doesn't matter what your degree is. It just matters that you do something that you're going to enjoy and increase your quality of life. And as long as you put in the work and, you know, try 100% every day, you can be a pilot. I mean, unless you got problems with your eyes or something, I mean, maybe you can get PRK or LASIK, but um, yeah. What, um, so talk a little bit. So obviously the Naval Academy, like the application, you have to be one of the smartest people in your high school than able to go to the Naval Academy, right? Or like a pretty, pretty yeah. up there. Um, I kind of had a feeling you were going to ask something about that. And I've been doing a lot of thinking lately and I don't necessarily think that you have to be the smartest. So I'm not a smart person. <laughs> I mean, I'm really not. I would argue that you probably are. You might not be, uh, maybe you're not like, you're more like me where you have to be very passionate about something or it doesn't click right away, you know, but you still have to be smart, mm-hmm. driven and determined to, to be able to make it to the Academy. Like they don't just choose like your average Joe, you know? Right. And I think the the sticking point there is the determination and the drive. I don't think that intelligence necessarily is an innate thing. Like, I definitely wasn't born smart. Um, I'm lucky with the life that I have and what's what's been given to me. Um, but I think that smartness, as most people see it, comes from the amount of work you're willing to put in and the consistency with which you're willing to do it. Um, for me, it's, it was about repetition and, you know, if you treat your brain, like you treat your body, you know, as a muscle, you do things enough times and enough repetitions and it, it becomes stronger. So my brain, like I'm not a smart person, but if I look at something a million times or I practice doing this type of math problem a million times, then when I see that kind of math problem again, I'm going to know how to do it. But it doesn't mean I'm smart because I'll tell you right now, I probably couldn't even do a lot of algebra right now that I learned in high school. Oh, either could I. <laughs> You're not the only one. My wife's like, yeah, you could definitely do like basic algebra. I'm like, not a freaking chance. Like, yeah. X, like- but going through middle school and high school, you can bet that I was one of the most determined and driven people and that I knew 
what I needed to get to one of the academies and I wasn't going to let anything get in my way. So I would go to Barnes and Noble after sports practice and I would stay there until the place closed down working on my homework. And I think that a lot of success in high school comes from just doing the work and then the rest of it will fall into place. But if you don't ever put in the work and do your homework and do the assignments, then you're not going to be ready for the tests. Like how well you do on the test is a byproduct of how much work you put in prior to that. And for me, I was a hard worker. So uh, again, I was very lucky to know what I wanted to do early and get my priorities straight and, and make that pretty much my, my life goal to be able to do it. But smartness, I don't think I'm smart. I just think I'm a hard worker when there's something that I'm passionate about. And really want to accomplish, and I just won't let anything stand in my way. Well, I feel like you're smart enough to recognize that. I feel like I don't know if that smart. Makes sense. Your it does make sense. I feel like there's varying levels of smart. Like everyone's gifted and more gifted, more talented in certain things. Some people are just naturally bright. Like uh, my wife can, if we are in the same class, she doesn't even need to study. She, she, you teach her once, and she knows forever. Where I'm more like you. I need to do it like a couple. <laughs> I need to do it like a hundred times, and I still probably get it wrong. And I'm like, oh, okay, never mind. I get it now. Yeah. But like. You, there's also smartness and there's street smarts and there's different levels of smartness, but you knew that you needed, you knew what you needed to do to get to your goal. Like you knew that you're smart enough and you're determined enough to be able to do that. There's also some smart people aren't very determined. So you need to have a good mix of being mm-hmm. smart and determined to be able to reach your goals. If you have one of the two, you might be able to go pretty far, but if you just have smart with no determination, you can go to the Naval Academy and you get around a bunch of other smart people and then they're determined and then you can <laughs> fall behind, you know? So that's all like, it's all yeah. relative. It's all it's a huge variable of, of smartness, determination, and being successful. Mm-hmm. Essentially, you got to have more than just smartness a lot of times to make it. That's true. You know, it's funny you mentioned um, you know going to the, the academy and you're full of a bunch of smart people. It's that is one of the one of the most humbling things was you know coming from my high school where I was I was a hard worker and it showed with you know where I stood when I came out of there. But then you go into a service academy and it's just full of people that are exactly like you. And you realize that, you know, <laughs> you're not so special where you are from your, from your small town. And now it's like, oh, cool. I've gone from the top of my class to like the middle or <laughs> the bottom third of it. And it's just like, it's very humbling. It is. And it, it can really hurt your your confidence. And once you lose your confidence, that can be kind of the end of everything. I mean, not the end of everything, but you know what I mean? It, it can really yeah. set you back and you can get in a dangerous mindset of like, I can't do this. And I can relate to that feeling when I went to Ohio State to play football, like coming out of high school, like you're one of the best, you're, you're really good. And then you go to Ohio State and mm-hmm. it's like, oh my gosh, like I suck. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this quarterback, six foot six, 250 pounds, runs a four, three, throws farther than me. It's like, yeah, I'm more <laughs> accurate than him and maybe a little bit smarter and pick it up. But like, there's no way yeah. I'm going to play over this guy. <laughs> and it, it, that honestly really like that messed with my mind for the four years I was there, just knowing that I wasn't as physically and athletically gifted. And it, it can really kind of, Kind of make you just in, in a weird place and, and lose some of your confidence. Yeah, but I mean, it, it's easy to to get in a mindset. I can totally see where you're coming from, and I've been in that spot too, um, academically at the academy and things like that. But you think about why don't people do a lot of things? Because they're afraid of fail failure. But if you look at some of the most successful people out there. You know, Michael Jordan 
he failed a lot. Um, I'm, I remember my high school basketball coach would, would talk about him and he'd be like, you know, Michael Jordan got passed up for his varsity basketball team or whatever. And then look at what he went on on to do. You know, Thomas Edison, you think the first time he made a light bulb, that thing turned on? Probably not. JK Rowling. Um, how many books do you think she wrote before she, you know, hit it big with Harry Potter, those kind of things. And people just, you can't be afraid of failure because like anything, when you're training, it's growth that comes from that failure. I'm sorry, I'm going to relate it to fitness again, but that's kind of what I'm into, but you're not going to grow unless you push your body to failure. And it's the same thing with your mind and your skill set. Like until you fail, you're not going to know what not to do. And you're not going to grow from that. So I don't think people should be afraid of failure. And you should use those that are, quote unquote, better than you to push you. Um, yeah, I don't Definitely know. agree. Sorry. No, that's a great point. And it's also, I feel like p- people aren't necessarily, sometimes they're afraid of failure and what they would think about themselves, but they're more afraid of what other people will think about themselves when they do fail. So it's like, you just need to block everyone. I mean, when I started this podcast, my biggest fear is what my high school, not even my friends from high school, just like the people I was in high school with, if they saw me do this and they'd be like, wow, Justin's doing a podcast, what a loser. It's like everyone has a podcast. Why does he think that he'll have a podcast? But it was, I didn't do it for like five months just because I was so in my head and just so like, people are going to judge me. This is dumb. But like eventually I just did it. And you just keep building and keep working. Like you said, push yourself as far as you can. And you just eventually have to block other people out and, and keep going, keep trying. And if you fail, learn from it and build on that. And that can, this, everything that we're talking about right now translates to your aviation career too. It's like your aviation training is going to be tough. You're going to be around smarter people and you're going to be around people that pick up landings quicker than you. you're going to be around better pilots. But you have to figure out a way to, to be determined and to continue pushing and get on their level and see it as motivation rather than, wow, they can do it. I can't, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so true. Well, yeah, that was a little tangent on uh, <laughs> nothing to do with flying, but we'll go back to. Uh, Sorry, yeah, is this an aviation podcast? Yeah, or are we talking not about anymore. I don't know if you got the memo, everyone, but we're switching to motivation right now. It's a uh, it's a Joe Rogan style <laughs> podcast, maybe Lewis Howes, something like that. <laughs> but uh, Naval Academy, you mentioned that you were struggling in school. Uh, Do they mainly choose for aviation slots the people that are doing best in school? Was that like a consideration and a worry of yours that you weren't going to get a pilot slot? That was a worry of mine, um, and I'm not really too sure on how it all works. I'm not sure what the algorithm is for it and things like that. But um, and like, and this was back in 2011 was when I graduated, so things could have always changed. But back then, they took your your academic rank. They took your you had a military rank as well, so you get like ranked academically. You know, one to a thousand, eleven hundred, or whatever it was, however many in your class, you get an academic rank and um, an academic, or a, sorry, a military GPA. And then they, they bring those military and academic GPAs together and you get your cumulative kind of kind of thing. And then they look at how well you did on your ASTB, so the standardized test for looking to get an aviation slot. And I couldn't really tell you much about that, that test. I remember there was some math and physics and uh, like basic stuff. There's also some basic aviation questions on there, which I was lucky to, to understand those. But they'll look at what are your preferences. So you put in this dream sheet and you're telling them, I want 
my first choice is to be a Navy pilot. My second choice is I want to be a, um, a naval flight officer, NFO. My third choice is, you know, surface warfare or SEALs or something like that. And so cool. You put in your preferences and this is your, I want to say this was fall of your senior year, your first year, you put in your preferences, what you want to do. And then I think there was something like an aviation selection board where they would have the senior naval aviator on the yard is usually an 06, a Navy captain, um, colonel equivalent in the other services. But there'd be a board of aviators who would go through um, who wants to be in the, in the pipeline, who wants to be a Navy, a Naval aviator, or NFO, look at all those kind of things and rack and stack them. And that's how they would determine, you know, who got to be Naval aviators or who was getting slated to be Naval flight officers. And I want to say we had a total of 400, a little over 400 from my class that got selected in, into Naval aviation whether it's naval aviator or naval flight officer. Um, and the only thing that really was big about where you were ranked for that naval aviation selection process was you got to choose when you went down to um, Pensacola to start flight school. Um, that was really the only like thing you cared about with how you were ranked. And then there was also... People who got selected for naval flight officer as pilots either got washed out during uh, pre-commissioning physicals where it's like, hey, you know, we didn't realize that this person had this issue going on with them and they cannot get a waiver. Okay, well, they're out of naval aviation. So here's the first ranked naval flight officer. We can offer them a, 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 Navy, a naval aviator slot now. And so that's kind of how that process okay. went. Did you ever have in your mind like a uh, a doomsday plan or a backup plan? Like, all right, maybe I don't get selected for this aviator spot. What's my plan B? What am I going to do? Or were you just so determined and so focused on becoming a naval aviator that you didn't even let that into your mind? (laughs) Um, I'd like to say I had a backup plan. Um, Because, you know, everybody should have a backup plan. (laughs) It sounds good when someone tells you, but in in reality, in making a backup plan, it's a lot harder than you think. Right. Yeah. Um, For me, I really didn't have that great of a backup plan. I knew I wanted to be a naval aviator, and if that didn't happen, then I was probably just going to try and become a uh, surface warfare officer and, you know, go be on a boat and try and do flying on the side fly civilian on the side. Um, but yeah, it was kind of like, I really didn't have a backup plan. I would, uh, I would say that. Yeah. So it's a good thing that you got the slot (laughs) is what you're saying. No. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. And that was just like the only thing that was going through my head when I had that really bad semester and I was on academic probation. Like (laughs) I need to change things around right now. Well, I think that's important to kind of to share that because I feel like people, when they think about the Naval Academy, they think that like, if you don't, if you're on probation or you're in that kind of uh, situation that maybe the Naval Academy is like, well, sorry, we have hundreds and hundreds of other people here. So you kind of screwed yourself over and you missed out on this ship. Uh, what, how was the Naval Academy and working with you? Were they like really good about it? Or was it kind of like, you have to do this by this or you're done? They were uh, amazing at it. And that is one of the things that I'm so grateful for is they, they don't want you to fail. 
at all. They don't want you to drop out. Like they saw something in you where they want you to be a part of their force and get a commission and, and lead sailors and Marines. And they, they've already put a bunch of money into you for your education and they put a bunch of money into your training. So it's really for them, like they want to see you succeed and they will do everything they can to help that. And you have academic advisors who are professors there and you would meet with them prior each semester and be like, all right, well, what do you want to take this semester for classes? Here's what you have to take um, for your major. Here's what you have to take for your military courses. And now here's kind of what you are able to take like for your options or whatever. And they would sit, would sit down and they'd have a pretty good conversation with you and kind of talk about how you're doing. And it's a very open and honest conversation and they want the best for you. Um, you know, for, for me, I was very headstrong, probably longer than I should have been with my academic advisor being like, no, uh, I want to stay in this major and I like, you know, I, I just want to stay. And it took a lot for me to admit that I needed to make a change. Um, but you know, once, once that happened, they were like, all right, cool. Yep. We're going to change your major. This is what you want to do. All right, sweet deal. These are the courses you need to take. And yeah, um, the check in on you, like everybody really wants you to succeed. The professors do academic advisors do your classmates do like there are so many safety nets there that are available for you to succeed. Uh, it, it's, it's priceless. You really can't put a, a penny on that. So almost the hardest part is getting in. Once you get in, they'll do everything they can to, to help you and put you in a position to, to make sure you can pass. Right. As long as you're willing to put the work in. Right. I mean, there are some people there who just they're not going to hold your hand. Want to give you an option. Help. Yeah. Yeah. And like those people, yeah, they would they would wash out. Or if people got in trouble for you know alcohol related things, then yeah, there wasn't much you could do to help them out. Or people were if people were cheating or lying about things, then you know that was pretty much your ticket out of there as well. Um, yeah. Don't break yeah. the rules. <laughs> Pretty much. Don't yeah. break the rules of the military. Pretty much in anything, it'll be all right. <laughs> yeah. Good training for the future. Uh, what was a more What was more exciting? What was like a better moment for you? The day that you realized you were going to be selected as a, a Navy pilot, or the day that you got the the kind of the acceptance to becoming uh, to go to the Naval Academy? That's a good question. I feel like I'm probably going to get choked up talking about this. But <laughs> good um, cry. Uh, yeah. Honestly, <laughs> man, I'm cutting onions right now. Yeah. Bad time to do a podcast. Um. For me, it was definitely the day that I found that I got accepted to the academy. I was sitting, it was a senior year of high school. I was sitting in my calculus class and uh, the teacher got a phone call and I hung up the phone. I was one of those kids in high school, like goody two shoes, never got in trouble and like nothing, you know, good performer. And the teacher looks at me, he's like, Casey, the principal wants to see you. Everyone just turns around in their seat and looks at me. I'm like getting warm. I'm like, oh, like, what did I do? I'm like, we're going through my head. Like, man, did I like not put my blinker on when I was coming to the parking lot and I park in someone's spot? Like, I don't know. Most innocent things. <laughs> yeah. And so I go down to his office and, and the secretary's like, yeah, principal's waiting for you. I'm like, okay. It's principal, uh, principal Hagen. Awesome guy. And like, Hey Casey, uh, you know why you're here? I was like, no, I, uh, I really don't. I'm like nervous sweating in front of him. He's like, well, I just, I just got the phone at the Naval Academy and I just, 
wanted to be the first one to let you know that they're offering you an appointment to go there. Um, and I just got this massive smile on my face and started like crying and everything. Cause this, this is all I really ever wanted to do is all I've been working for. And I thought my chances were kind of slim because I didn't have the best SAT or ACT scores, you know, and it was just this, this dream. Um, it's like went upstairs, went back to my class and one of my best friends, Joey, he's like, dude, like what, what happened? And I was like, uh, I got into the Naval Academy and he just like stands up in the class and he's like, Casey Swift's going to the Naval Academy. <laughs> like, That's so cool. It sounds like a movie. Cool. <laughs> the beginning of a I movie know. or something. I was like, man, where's the music here? <laughs> yeah, right? That's so cool. Uh, I called my parents and I was like crying to them on the phone and they were super happy. But yeah, well, I mean like the weird thing was, so I was super happy about that because two weeks prior I had mentioned I applied to West Point as well, and I hadn't heard anything from the Naval Academy yet. I got my congressional nominations all to the Naval Academy. I pretty much put all my eggs in one basket for that, and I applied to West Point, got a call from them pretty quick, and there was this guy. It was super weird. I don't even know, remember who he was, but I got a phone call one day. It's two weeks prior to find out about, the, uh, about Annapolis. He's like, hey, Casey, my name's so-and-so. And, um, I heard you got a letter of assurance to West Point and which I did, they sent me a letter saying, you know, uh, on the conditions that you provide us with an essay, we'll offer you an appointment. And I was like, Oh boy, here we go. Uh, I was kind of sitting on that cause I hadn't heard back from Annapolis and I didn't really want to be a helicopter pilot. Um, so yeah, this guy calls me and I was like, yes, sir. That's true. I have a letter of assurance. And he's like, if you, he's like, I also understand that you don't have a nomination to West Point, though. And I was like, that's true. I don't. They're all at the Annapolis. And he goes, okay, well, if you promise me that, that you will commit to West Point, I will find you a nomination from someone who hasn't used all of theirs, not necessarily from your state. And I'm like, oh, man, like, do I want to pass this up? Like it's, it's West Point. It's still Academy Academy. I could still fly, but it's not what I want. And I was like, um, that sounds awesome. Can I get back to you? And he's like, yep, you got you got some time. Just here's my phone number. Give me a call back and we can make it happen. It's like, all right, big, big, big deep breath. Uh, uh, but then luckily, you know, I got that call a couple weeks later and it's like, didn't have to sweat it anymore. That's so, such a tough position to be in. Cause obviously you're like super grateful and you want that opportunity, but at the same point, you're like, I mean, honestly, you're not what I want. You know, it's like, I have to go after right. my dream. I don't, like you said, I want to fly helicopters. I want to fly in the Navy. I want to fly pilot. I want to fly not pilots. I want to fly aircraft. I want to fly fixed wing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so tough. Good thing the Navy called when they did, because eventually you'd probably be like, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> I know. And this I would be know. a whole different conversation. Awesome. It sure would. Yeah. It sure would. What, uh, so let's kind of go into the Navy pilot training. What, so obviously Naval Academy was really tough. Did that prepare you for what it was going to be like to do your aviation training? Or do you think it was a little bit easier, a little bit harder? You weren't as prepared? Kind of talk about the whole training process. Um, sure. So I think I was pretty prepared. I'm not sure if the Academy really helped me out with that or not, but it definitely was able to instill in me putting your you know, face to the grindstone and, and just hunkering down and studying but you also get exposed to 
a little bit of kind of civilian living for the first time because you got all these kids now that are coming from ROTC or OCS who live this college life. And here we are from the Naval Academy. We're very sheltered and hadn't really experienced that kind of freedom before. So it was difficult in that regard. Um, of being able to go out and like do other, like have live a normal life and fly or what? Right. Yeah. Cause it's like, you know, I'm so used to not being able to do this that I almost kind of want to overindulge. But at the same time, you know, it's like a work hard, play hard mentality. And so for me, first part of pilot training was relatively easy. So, well, you start off at API, Advanced Pre-Flight Indoctrination out of Pensacola, Florida, called the Cradle of Naval Aviation. That place is awesome. Um, but it's all just classes, uh, academic stuff with some swimming in there, survival stuff. Once you're done with that, then you go. And for me at the time, we were flying T-34. Um, uh, Charlie's the mentors. Uh, now they're flying T-6s, the Texans. But you go primary flight train, you either go to Corpus Christi, Texas, or you can stay at uh, Pensacola area, go over to Whiting Field. Your primary flight train there, it's a lot of just basic flying because a lot of these people, they have never flown before. So the only real flight experience that they had was um, doing what they called IFS, uh, which I can't remember what it stands for, but you basically go fly a Cessna to your solo and then that's it, just to make sure that you can, in fact, have some stick and rudder skills. Before they put you in a big plane with some power. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, for me, luckily, I didn't have to do that. I got my private uh, my private license in high school. So, I got that IFS thing wavered. Um, anyway, sidetrack, focus. Uh, primary, just basic flying, takeoffs, landings, um, emergencies, a little bit of simulator build up. You start your instrument training there, basic instruments, radio instruments. You do a little bit of formation flying towards the end. Um, and then after that, you get selected for whether you're going to go maritime slash helo, which is either a P3, P8, or flying the um, uh, H60s. So you go that route, or you'll go to the tailhook route which would be uh, T-45s. So with the Maritime Hilo, you're probably going to fly, uh, what was it, uh, T-44s or TC-12s, I think it was. I can't remember. Um, but I, went, I ended up going flying T-45s. You either do that at Kingsville, Texas, which is just like half hour, 45-minute drive from Corpus Christi, where I did my training at, or you go to Meridian, Mississippi, um, one of those two bases, there, you start flying. That's your first time flying turbine or uh, sorry, jet aircraft, T forty five Goshawk single engine. Pretty cool, um, especially not having done it before. For me, that was my first ejection seat aircraft. And about halfway through that training, you'll either get selected to go TAC Air, which would be F eighteen uh, or E eighteen. Now with F thirty five online, you can go F thirty five as well. Or if you don't go TAC Air. Then you go E2C2, so flying Hawkeyes or um, the Greyhounds. For me, I went the TAC Air route. Um, and then at the end of TAC Air, prior to getting your wings, that's when you get selected for um, Growlers, Super Hornets, or now uh, F-35s. So, yeah. Is that based on uh, kind of like your rank on which one you get? Or is it just uh, how does yeah. that work? Yeah. 
well, like anything, there's there's your preferences, and then there's needs of the Navy. And they try to do a good job of making sure that your preferences match the needs of the Navy. Um, and then also your performance. So you get a GPA as well um, for your flying, uh, for your flight training. And the scale has changed since I went through. Um, they had an NSS. It was like a composite score that they would use. And it was not... Um, it wasn't really the, the easiest thing to compute. You kind of didn't really know how it was computed. It would just be at the bottom of a sheet sometimes. You'd be able to see it. Um, for me, I never really looked at it. And uh, things ended up working out just fine. So That's awesome. <laughs> <I think> it, <laughs> I'm glad they did. Yeah. What yeah. is, what's kind of like the, the premier flying job? And like, say you're, you're top of the class. You can choose anything you want. What is like the number one thing people want? Is it the F-35? Is it... Uh, I know it's personal preference, but I'm guessing there's like one thing that someone really like may, might be the most coveted flying job. Right. You know, right now I'm not really too sure what it was uh, or what it is. I think that I would assume that right now the F-35 is, you know, the hotness because it's brand new and it's pretty sweet. I you wouldn't mind do flying some, like, that either. Unbelievable things that shouldn't be done in an airplane. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah. I don't, don't really know much about the F-35. I, I kind of wish I did, but. Um, at the time there were a lot more people going to fly super hornets than there were growlers. Growlers were kind of just coming online. Um, prior to that, it had been the EA 60 prowler. And when I graduated from flight school, the prowler was no longer an option to select. Although the Marines were still flying them for Navy, you went to the growler. And so there was still a transition occurring for prowler to growler. And uh, I think more people wanted to fly Super Hornets and do more air-to-air and drop bombs and stuff like that. It's uh, you know kind of like the more the more top gunny things than what the Growler does. What was uh, what was the toughest part about flight school for you? Was it uh, the academic side of it? Was it just the the rigors of flying so often and going up and, and having this training and having so many like check rides and tests and checking points and stuff like that? What was the toughest part for you? Toughest part for me, I'd say, was thinking I was pretty good at flying because I, you know, I'd gotten my license in high school and you know, aviation was not was nothing new to me. I knew how to fly an aircraft. But once you went to the T forty five past the initial stage, it was kind of like, all right, now this is all completely new flying. You know, we're we're practicing air to air type stuff, we're flying in formation, we're practicing bombing. Uh, strike and stuff like that, which stuff I had never done before. So learning completely new things was difficult, um, as well as it was a pretty good pace. I remember, you know, I, um, I think I, fa- yeah, no, I definitely failed. Uh, we had this road recce uh, flight um, where there's this kind of calm cadence you would use. You're flying low to the ground, going fast and you would do these kind of like pop patterns like you were going to do strike these different targets and these targets happen relatively quickly um and there was this calm cadence that went with it and i can't remember what it was right now i just remember practicing out practicing it out in a parking lot with my buddies we would walk around this parking lot talking through the maneuvers talking through the comms that we were going to do for it 
And then you get to the flight and it's like, sweet. We were able to do this in the parking lot. It was nice. I got it nailed to get to the flight. And then it's just like, cool. I forget everything right now. <laughs> oh, and, crap. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so you got this instructor with you. Um, you land and you're just like, Ugh, that was not good. And they're like, yeah, that's, um, that's, that's, uh, you have to redo that one. I'm like, sweet. And everyone there is type A personality. Nobody likes to fail, but it's something I've never done before. And again, very humbling because you can be spot on with doing something at one G on the ground. As soon as you get into the aircraft and it's a dynamic environment, things change. And so that was definitely difficult. Was the hardest part like putting it all together? Because I mean, I'm sure you could do like if you could just focus on the one, the comms, you could do the comms, but then you had to fly the plane and then you had to do everything else. Was it just putting it all together? That was the most difficult probably like in that very dynamic environment. It was, and, and because you're not, like, you've never done this before, and you're looking at, like, Google Maps photos, trying to see what you're, you're looking for prior to doing the flight. And, of course, when you're flying, it doesn't look like the Google Map. And, and <laughs> Did you print so, out the Google yeah. Map and, and have a picture of it so you could try to match it up with what you saw outside? <laughs> I, I think we had printouts of what the targets looked like, but, you know... Turn left at the railroad tracks, and then if you see the barn, you went too far. (laughs) I mean, essentially, that's pretty much what it was. I mean, it ended up being fun. I think that's one of the most rewarding things is, and again, kind of going back to being afraid of failure, failing at something, and then when you come back and crush it, you know, that was one of the most rewarding things. So, you know, double-edged sword, I guess you could say. Yeah, it is, because you can do it. I mean, like I said, when you get pushed, <clears throat> when you push yourself and you and your physical talents, your mental talents, and they get taxed, and they get pushed to their extreme abilities, and you prove that you can overcome adversity, and you can do it, then you will be extremely happy. And I'm sure, I mean, even your instructors are probably, they would rather see someone overcome adversity than do everything right and never fail. Because they don't know <clears throat> what's going to happen when that person finally fails. It's important to fail, because... They need to know, like, what's going to happen if you're in combat and some the worst possible thing happens. Are you going to freeze up because you never had any difficulties in your training, or are you going to be able to overcome? You know, mm-hmm. no, that's so true. And uh, yeah, that's all I'll say. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's definitely. So sometimes it's not good to. I mean, it is good to pass everything, but it's also good to have those humbling moments, and you know how you'll react in some crazy situations. No, for sure, for sure. How long was your pilot training? Was it a year? Was it two years? What was the, the length? Um, let's see. For me, like I said, I'm bad at math, so I got to do this out loud. <laughs> <laughs> I the started <laughs> API in Pensacola, so the very start of it, oh, October of 2011. And then I got my wings in September of 2013. So yeah, about two years when it's all said and done, which is probably the longest for... Um, any of the the pipelines you can go for. I think that uh, Maritime, so the P3, P8, and the Hilo pipeline is, is shorter. And then from actually, you know, you want to talk about being completely done and going out to the fleet uh, to do operational things, that wasn't until May of 2015. So you're looking at you know, three and a half, almost four years sometimes, but it's it's gotten a lot shorter. Things have gotten better. What's the, what's, what's your actual, I mean, I don't even know if you can, but like, what's the, the standard mission of say a growler? Like what, I guess what you're doing in the growler, is it kind of like surveillance? Mm-hmm. Like what, what is your standard mission uh, being based up in 
the Northwest, right? Yeah, yeah, up in Woodby Island. It's beautiful out here, by the way, in the summertime. Um, so Growler mission is SEED, S-E-A-D, Suppression of Enemy Air Defenses. Basically, um, we're going out there looking to detect and jam enemy radars that are trying to shoot down you know, the good guys so that they can go in there without you know getting hit and stuff like that yeah, in a very basic nutshell. Is it also making sure Russia doesn't come and bust up through Alaska? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I wish. I think the F-22s are doing more of that. Yeah. That's funny. Um, Doing it all again, would you, well, not doing the Naval Academy again, but going back through um, your training uh, for flying, looking and seeing where everything has gone, where the aircraft is now, would you have chosen or would you have still wanted to do what you're doing now? Or do you see like another opportunity that you wish you had out there? You wish you would have maybe put yourself in a position to do that. Or are you happy where you are? I'm completely happy where I am. Uh, one of the things going through flight school, we were getting ready to select uh, whether we wanted to go attack air or whether we wanted to do maritime. I had kind of been leaning towards maritime for a while because I was like, oh, sweet. They got the P8 coming online. That's a 737. That'd be sweet to fly. You know, someday I want to go to the airlines and it'd be cool to do that. To have a type And then, really? what's that? I said to have that type rating, that'd be huge. Yeah, that'd be great. Right, yeah. Um, so that's kind of what my mindset was at the time. And then one of my really good buddies, uh, I was actually roommates with him at the academy. We went through flight school uh, together for a little bit. But I was talking to him and I was like, dude, I don't know what I want to select. Like I thought I wanted, you know, I think I want P3, P8, but I've got... I've got the grades to go jets, to go tail hook. And he is, he kind of said to me, you know, dude, you can fly a 737 type thing for the rest of your life. But, you know, when you look back after however many years, are you going to regret not having flown jets, you know, or, or tail hook and wish that you had done it since you had the opportunity? And that really resonated with me. And I was kind of like, you know what, dude, you're, you're totally right. And so that's what but pushed me to go the route that I did. And I'm super happy where I'm at right now. I think the Growler community is amazing. It's really chilled out. It's a very small community. Um, everybody knows everyone. And it's just, it's a really great group of people to be around. So I'm really happy where I'm That's at. the best advice you could ever get. That guy is a genius. Because if you would ask me, I'd be like, dude, you can fly a 737 for Southwest for the rest of your life. Go fly something cool. Like, go get some great stories. Go do something badass, you know? Yeah. Not to say that the, maybe that 737 for the Navy isn't cool, but, I mean, what you're doing seems from the outside looking in a lot cooler. <laughs> see, you say that, but then I see your pictures, and I'm like, man, the grass is always greener. It's always yeah, greener. No, dude. This is the same way everyone looks at your pictures. Like, oh, it's so cool. I want to do that. <laughs> I want to take the visor selfie in the middle of a, you know, a fighter pilot. It's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun, but they, they don't see the paperwork that I'm doing at my desk when I'm not flying. You yeah, know? no one that, sees the paperwork. The that... You should take a couple Top pictures. Always of always leaves that one out. <laughs> jerks. What jerks. Yeah. What's your favorite <laughs> part of flying the Growler? Like the absolute favorite thing of flying the Growler? Oof. Um, favorite thing. I think uh, we... Well, one, I love... I love the area that we're at. I think, I don't think you can find a better place to fly. Um, in the wintertime, you know, Seattle weather is kind of rainy and dreary, but you talk about just having some amazing views. I think that 
that's one of my favorite things about flying the growler is you know some days you can see mount rainier and mount hood at the same time um you can do low levels through the cascade mountains um which is awesome and we have the ability to do a bunch of different missions suppression of enemy air defenses that that's our primary mission um but we also have the ability to do some air-to-air stuff so we'll train for that we'll do the the bfm the basic fighter maneuvers the slash dog fighting um we'll practice that we'll you know we're, we're not going to practice doing any sort of bombing type stuff because we don't we don't carry those we don't do it but um you can kind of have a flavor of a lot of different kinds of flying um, I'm, I'm a huge aviation nerd so for me even just going to the tanker and what normal people would say is pretty boring it's like an administrative part of the flight I enjoy going to the tanker. It's cool flying next to a, a KC-135 or a KC-10 or um, something like that. You know, I heard it's, it's tough. Neat. I heard it's a pretty tough skill to get to, to get down. Yeah, it, uh, it definitely takes a little bit of experience. And some tankers are definitely more forgiving than others, that's for sure. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, what's your least favorite part of flying the Growler? Like uh, something that you just can't stand or you just don't like? <laughs> if you have one, you don't have to have one. No, I definitely do. At least favorite part of the growler is the lack of real estate in the cockpit. <laughs> um, even like sometimes I I want to bring my Nalgene bottle in there, and sometimes it fits, and sometimes it doesn't, based on how many pubs I have with me. Um, or if you're on a long trans pack, taking planes over to Japan or something like that, you're just sitting in this small little cockpit for. You know, eight hours or so can't move the best thing i can do to stretch my legs is move my seat all the way up and there's still a bend in my legs you know no no coffee pot no bathroom you had no curing come on man what the heck what I are these know. conditions sometimes I, I look at my heavy friends in the air force and i'm like man c17 doesn't yeah. sound too bad right you want now. espresso man you good no okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's but funny it's a small price to pay it doesn't happen too often but when you're in there for a while, it's it's a little uncomfortable. What's the longest flight you've ever flown in the Growler? Um, close to nine hours, I want to say. How many times do you have to refuel to do that? Well, that one, yeah, I think I want, I want to say it was like eight or nine hours. We had somewhere around like 14 or 15 refuelings along the way. Jeez. Yeah. How, much, how much fuel do you burn per hour? Or I don't know how you, is it, what, however you you say how much fuel you burn, how much do you burn usually per hour or per flight or whatever? Um, I mean, per flight, if we were to do a, a normal training mission around here, um, you know, we'd go through about 16,000 pounds of gas and do it in two hours. Oh, geez. <laughs> That's crazy. Just kind of depends how much afterburner you're using as well. Yeah. What was it like going in a, a jet for the first time and being able to put it in afterburner? Was it pretty cool? <laughs> yeah, it was really cool. I remember my first flight in the in the Growler, and so like the T forty five Gosshawk doesn't have afterburner; it's just military power. Like that was cool. But then first flight in the Growler, that's funny. The pilot who I was flying with, he's now an instructor with me. Uh, he's obviously a higher rank now, but it's just funny how things come full circle. Anyway. Yeah, it was cool. The first time you put it into afterburner, you kind of hit the you hit the military power detent, and you push through it all the way into uh, AB, and it's just a little bit of a little bit of kick in the seat there, and being able to lift off and you know eighteen hundred feet, pretty quick. That's crazy. 
things move fast and yeah. the gear speed comes faster. <laughs> Get pinned to the back of your seat pretty quick. Yeah. Oh, crap. Like, oh my God. <laughs> Don't overspeed the gear. Yeah. Oh yeah. That, that would happen very quick too, wouldn't it? Yeah. I can't say I haven't done that in a previous aircraft. Yeah, no, no one's ever done that before. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> People do that in small planes. I remember one time I was flying, I didn't overspeed the gear, but I was flying a 310 and aero survey and I took off. It was a long day. I was taking off. I think we're repositioning or something. I was like, why am I climbing so slow? Like, what is happening? And I was like, looking outside, I was like, power is good. Like, I was like, flaps are up. I was like, holy crap. I left the gear down for like 20 minutes. And I was like, oh, but that happens to people. And it's just something that you, it's kind of the thing that in aviation where you learn from your mistakes and that has never happened yeah. to me again. I mean, I was flying cargo and my chief pilot took off with car from our home base and he was flying out and for some reason, the owners had binoculars and they're watching him take off and he had the gear down for like 10 minutes and they called him up on oh. the radio and like, uh, your gear's down. <laughs> He's like, dang it. <laughs> so it happens to people and I'm sure overspeeding yeah. gear can happen, overspeeding flaps, whatever it may be, it can happen. Just uh, mm -hmm. learn from it. Don't do it again. Yeah. Bring bring some beverages for the maintenance crew. Yeah. Right. Sorry, guys. What do you like? Sorry. You like whiskey? <laughs> I'll bring you back some Japanese whiskey next exactly. time I go to Japan. <laughs> All right. Uh, one question mm -hmm. I have for you is you obviously get a ton of questions because I mean, I mean, everyone that likes aviation loves, like not loves, but thinks the idea of being a military pilot, fighter pilot, what you're doing is just so cool. So I'm sure 16 year olds, or you've said that people have reached out to you. What's kind of, if, so what's the advice that you would give them? If someone asks you a question, you'd be like, just go listen to one hour and nine minutes of the pilot to pilot podcast or like this <laughs> section, this is my advice. What's your advice to someone that's a, let's say they're a freshman and they want to do this, what, what do they need to do to get in your position to do what you do? Okay. Um, for that, let's see. I would say that uh, you need to make it a priority. It's not something that you can just be like, you know what? Yeah, I don't think this, uh, this retail gig's working out. I'm going to go be a fighter pilot. I think you got to have a, a real clear goal, and you got to know how to get there. And one of the biggest things with how to get there is – Give 100% in every little thing that you do. I know that sounds really cliche, but if it was easier to do, we'd have a lot more people doing it. Um, so you got to have your priorities right. You got to give 100%. And then I think you also have to realize that even when you're a military pilot, it's not just about flying. There is... 75% more things that I do that don't involve flying that involve, you know, being able to lead your sailors, your Marines, your airmen, um, your soldiers and stuff like that, where they're looking up to you and you're trying to help them be successful and do their job. And so if you want to just fly cool planes, you can probably find some sort of jet team, to be a part of in the civilian side and you just show up, jump in the plane, go do your thing. Or, you know, you can go to an airline and show up at the gate, get your dispatch release, walk in there with the iPad and go. That's all you do. But with military flying, like you need to realize that 75% of what you do doesn't involve flying. And it's way more about you. Like you're one person who's taken up an airplane, but you've got an entire maintenance team of you know really bright young individuals from all walks of life whose sole job is to give you enough aircraft to fly um 
And so having that good relationship with them, you know, it's not just going out there and flying an airplane. It's, you know, being a role model and being a leader for, for people who want to be led. Yeah. What would you say to someone that might be like that senior? It's like, Hey man, I really want to go to the Naval Academy. I want to do this. Like, what advice would you give them on uh, still becoming a fighter pilot or a naval pilot, but not not necessarily going the actual Naval Academy route? Because it is probably way too late for them to get everything they need by then. Um, <clears throat> what is it? Officer Training School, ROTC at your college that you go to? Is that what you'd recommend? Yeah. So if you're able to, you can do ROTC at, uh, at your college. And it doesn't necessarily... It have to be like Navy ROTC or Air Force ROTC. You can cross commission. I've had friends that have done it where you know, even at the academy, they've graduated from the Naval Academy and then gone into the Air Force. I'm pretty sure ROTC does the same thing. So you can do that if the university you're at offers ROTC. Or if not, you can go get your degree, not do any sort of military-related stuff in college. And then once you're done... You can go through um, OCS, Officer Candidate School, and um, get your commission that way. I'm not really too familiar with ROTC or the OCS routes, but those are some options. You also have the the other rare option, which is you, know, you could enlist, and then after you enlist in the military, you could try to pick up an officer spot after that. Um, a lot more difficult, a lot less common. I think the easier route is to go ROTC or OCS. Good to know. There you go. So if you ever have anyone ask you a question, be like, all right, go listen to hour hour and seven minutes. I give you 10 minutes of what you need to do to get there. So now you have that little snippet for you. I know. I get so many of those too. I'm like, I need to just like type up something in the notes on my phone where I can just copy and be like, all right, here you go. Absolutely. It's tough, <laughs> but now you got it. Um, yeah. So those are pretty much all the questions I have for you right now. I have one section, all the right. rapid fire section I want to do. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on at all? I don't think so. I just really appreciate being able to to talk about all this aviation stuff with you. It's been awesome. Yeah, it's been, been waiting fun. to do it for a while. It's definitely been fun and we'll definitely have to, to figure out a way to keep it, keep doing it and keep going at it and get you back on yeah. again. Uh, you can be our uh, our growler representative. Anytime there's growler news, you can come on and be like, whoa, Casey from the growler. <laughs> Oh man, oh, <laughs> pressure. But I got a little rapid fire section for you. It is just uh, very basic aviation questions, and you just say the first thing that comes to your mind, the quickest first answer. So it doesn't matter if it's funny, if it's stupid, whatever it is, that's what you got to say. I've been preparing for this. Good, let's do it. What is your favorite airplane overall of civilian, military, uh, ultralight, whatever it may be? If you could choose one plane, what would be your favorite? So, um, 747. Okay. What about yeah. corporate? If you could choose like one corporate jet, what would be your favorite corporate jet? I'm going to suck up right now and say the Laddie. Hey, that's what's up. It's a movement, man. <laughs> the latitude's taking over. <laughs> uh, All right. Now there's one answer to this question. Uh, there's only one answer, but what is the ugliest airplane you've ever seen? This is the one I was preparing for. <laughs> you got something I good? I want to say Piaggio to appease you, but no, I found so you're something on. even more, even more gross. <laughs> What is it? There is a uh, McDonnell XF-85 Goblin. I'm I'm on Google Uh, right now typing it in. Yeah, look it up. It looks super weird. Um, The story behind it is even weirder. It's supposed to come out of a B-36 and fight off MiG-15s or something like that. (laughs) looks like a little football. 
why did they think that was a good idea? <laughs> I don't know. It obviously never really took off. Pun definitely intended. It's like someone watched like Star Wars and was like, we need something really small like that, like a little spider thing <laughs> that's not right. ever going to fly and not work that shoots out of the, the, the Death Star. Yeah, that's I mean, in my in my preparation, though, I also did see the PL-11 air truck, which is equally as gross. It looks like something I probably drew up as a kid when I was All thinking right. about airplanes. Looking that up now, too. And those are the only two I'll give you. Yeah, that's ugly, too. That's interesting. <laughs> I mean, in all seriousness, this is probably uglier than the Piaggio, but the fact that like that's my thing now, I have to always say the Piaggio. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But the, P- that, the air truck, man, that is something else. <laughs> doesn't even look aerodynamic at all. <laughs> no. That, okay. Well, that's, uh, that's up there for sure. It's, it's so funny. So many people send me their ugliest planes. Like, is this uglier than the Piaggio? And I always just say no, just because it's like, like I said earlier, it's my thing. Like I just, I guess I'm known for hating the Piaggio. So I just fully embrace it now, but mm-hmm. people send me a lot of ugly airplanes and helicopters <laughs> and it's like, wow, there's a lot of ugly aircraft out there. It's unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's go back. I got, uh, I got a couple more for you. What is something you wish you knew before you became a pilot? So this could even go back before you got your private pilot license in high school, uh, before you did your training in the Naval Academy, before you went to aviator school, whatever you call it. Just uh, what's something you wish you knew? Something I wish I knew. Wow, that is difficult. Um, something I wish I knew. We can come back to it if you want. On another one. I guess just that uh, I wish I knew that airplanes run on money and not gas <laughs> it's good to know yeah that, that is very important how expensive this is <laughs> yeah all right here's another one who in the industry it could be military they could be dead they could be alive uh it could be an instagram fan that you just or an instagram a favorite instagram follow who's someone in the industry that you would love to meet maybe go fly with uh go drink a beer with whatever maybe who's one person in the industry yeah, that's a really tough question, you know. Um, I'd say uh, Sam Eckholm, um, Second Lieutenant Sam. That's what he used to be until he until he got promoted. Nice job, congrats, buddy. Um, I don't know. Do you know him? Yeah, he's uh, the F twenty two Raptor. Um, he makes all the cool media stuff and takes all their like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's an amazing photographer. He's very um, talented. Yeah. F-22 is really cool too. Oh yeah. I mean, it's hard to take a bad picture in F-22. I'm not saying that what he's doing isn't great. He takes a much better picture than I could, but like that, that thing's sweet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, Sam would be cool. I'm, I'm trying to get him on the podcast too. So maybe uh, Ooh, that'd be good. you'll go meet up with him and you'll talk him into going on the podcast. How about that? I'll see what I can do. All right, man. I'm counting on you. All right. here. Oh, what's your favorite thing about aviation? If you could just choose one thing about flying, what's your favorite thing? Or just aviation in general? Um, favorite thing with aviation in general for me, it's actually like a stress reliever. Um, I feel like I can leave all my problems on the ground when I go flying, like really, no matter what's going on, being up in the air, like everything else, as soon as, uh, not even being in the air, like as soon as the engine starts and you hear the APU starting up, you just kind of get in the zone and it's a really cool feeling. You just stop thinking about everything else. Like the views are amazing. Especially where you're flying, that's for sure. Yeah. That's cool. What is the hardest approach you've ever flown? <laughs> hardest approach I've ever flown? Um, probably this... Uh, we, we practice some like no gyro approaches sometimes. Like no gyro, no HUD approaches. Um, 
for like a PAR, uh, which is pretty difficult. We don't really we don't do them in real life, but in the event that it ha- that it would happen, that would probably I'd be like, oh boy, this is the most difficult thing I've ever had to do. Yeah, like great. <laughs> Start yeah, saying your prayers, maybe. like please, Lord. Help yeah, no gyro, no uh, HUD PAR. There you go. All right, that sounds not fun at all. What is no. your favorite approach that you ever fly or ever have flown? Ooh, favorite approach flown. Could be a visual. It doesn't have to be like an ILS or anything like that. Just your all-time favorite. Yeah, you know, um, this wasn't really actually an approach per se, but uh, I I took a Cessna 182 into Teterboro with my roommate from the academy one time. We flew the uh, Hudson Corridor up there, and that was really cool. That's that's bold of you. Going to Teterboro on a 182 is probably an interesting time. Yeah, it was uh, <laughs> very busy. Very busy. Teterboro is an interesting place. I love Teterboro. Teterboro will, will, yeah, Teterboro is just an interesting place. <laughs> That's yeah. a good way to put it. You don't know until you know, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What's your favorite airport you've ever landed at? Mm. I would say. Guam's pretty cool. Anderson Air Force Base in Guam. Yeah, it's got this like massive cliff on the approach end of one of the runways that you come into. Um, so yeah, that was neat. Actually doing it in a C-17, uh, I kind of moseyed my way up there into the jump seat for the landing, and they did a um, like a tactical descent or whatever. That was pretty cool. But yeah. What is your least favorite airport to land at? Mm. One that you get like brief for, and you're like, "You gotta be kidding me! Why do I have to go here?" <laughs> that's uh, that's not really something that happens that often, to be quite honest. Really, I think the thing that we worry about most is if we have to go somewhere and then we get stuck there. Like that, that is the biggest issue. It's like, man, if I if I take this jet here and we get stuck, I don't think I want to be stuck there. Yeah, I can see that. Is there one that comes to mind? Or can you not say? Mm, no, I mean, I can tell you that I learned the hard way about picking cross-country stops when we were bringing a jet home from the East Coast. And everyone's like, you know, when you're planning your fuel stops, make sure you plan them at places you wouldn't mind getting stuck. And I didn't really think about it. Well, we got stuck in Fort Wayne, Indiana for about a week due to some generator problems. A week? Yeah, and there was nothing there. But the cool thing was there was an A-10 squadron. I was saying uh, they got the war out there, right? Yeah, yeah, so it was kind of cool to be around that. But that was good for about an hour or two. And then I was like, all right, Fort Wayne, Indiana. I can tell you right now that of all the places I've had overnights, you could do much, much worse than Fort Wayne, <laughs> Indiana. It's like that would be in like- El Paso once, actually. You know, El Paso is surprisingly not as bad as I like when you hear El Paso, like I'm from the East Coast and it's like El Paso. Like it just doesn't sound like a cool place, but you go there. I mean, the mountain's kind of cool. Like the it's always yeah. the weather's always all right. It's always windy though. See, when I got stuck there, I was with this is in flight school and I was with my flight instructor, which there's always like a weird relationship, relationship between you and your military instructor. So yeah. a little weird. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, would you rather fly IFR or VFR? Uh, oof. Um, not a difficult one. Uh, I guess VFR. 
If you had, uh, let's say you have a connection on an airline, you have to go to the airport, what's your go-to airport food to get? I know you're all fitness and, and healthy and buff and you probably bring your own grilled chicken with you and peas or whatever it is, but like you have to get fast food. Which one are you, which one are you craving? What are you going for? Panda Express. Ooh, Panda. That could be dangerous. I know. I love their orange chicken. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. Would you rather fly over mountains, the beach, or a city? Mm, or a city that's located on a beach by the mountains? <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's go to let's right. go to like vancouver or something. i know right you can't go wrong with that yeah do you have a preference airbus or boeing yeah this is always a tough one i get into a lot of nerdy conversations i really like the airbus flight decks i think they're super modern and sleek i like the lighting on them i like the tray table that comes out but boeing I mean, that's 747. That's just been something I've wanted to fly ever since I was a little kid. Yeah, you better hurry it's just, up. It's just an icon. <laughs> I know. I'm like, man, really? All this bad news lately. Yeah, I know. Come on, man. Just keep the 747, please. Yeah. What is your favorite airline livery? If you had to choose one, which one is your favorite? It could be an older one. could be a brand new one. Mm, let's see. Uh, I'm going to have to go with, you know, I like, um, I like Cathay Pacific's livery. I think it looks cool. And they've got a 747-800 for their cargo, for Cathay Pacific Cargo. That's just got this really neat livery. I saw it at Oshkosh a couple of years ago. No, I'm going to get sad talking about Oshkosh. Yeah, dang it. Why'd you bring that up? You should. Do you follow Sorry, Pilot yeah. Obet on Instagram? <laughs> What's that? Do you follow Pilot Obet on Instagram? Uh, very shortly, I will. I'll tell you. Yeah, that. he's a 747 uh, pilot for Cathay Pacific. I think he does cargo stuff too, so you'd, you'd probably appreciate it. Oh, yeah, he's a good guy to follow. All right. I got another one for you. What is the hardest check ride you've ever taken? Hardest check ride. Or it could be like a test flight in the military. I don't know if they're called check rides or, or sorties yeah, or whatever you want to no, call it. They're called check rides. I mean, hardest check ride is uh, probably your NATOPS check that you get when um, – when you're getting checked out in the growler, like coming through as a student, that first NATOPS check, it's pretty much equivalent to a line check, I want to say. And they just kind of throw the book at you, like give you a scenario where it really tests your comprehensive knowledge on all the aircraft systems and how they intertwine. And so, yeah, that was uh, that was lots of fun. But I mean, like anything, you learn something from it. None of them go perfectly. That is very true. Everything's a learning experience. Uh, yeah. The next two are kind of, you don't have to have an answer. Well, for one of them, you probably will, but this one, I don't know if you will. I mean, if you don't want to talk about it, you can, but what is the biggest regret in your career that you've had so far? Like maybe you look back on something, you're like, man, I really, really wish I would have done this. And like I said, you don't necessarily have to have one. It could be all great. But uh, if you have one, what would be the biggest regret? Um, I, you know, honestly, I don't... Uh Actually, you know what? I think the biggest regret I have right now is, you know, sometimes there'll be flights that need to get filled on the flight schedule, like an instructor falls out and it's like, hey, we need someone else to do this. And sometimes I'm just not really in the mood and I'll be like, mm, someone else will yeah. take that flight. Nope. But next. Yeah. I know. And I'm like, man, I know that there's probably some kid out there or some other aviator who's like, you passed up the opportunity. To go fly in the growler? Like, yeah. Yes. Yeah, but you don't understand, man. Like, I already, I just flew nine hours to Japan. Like, I'm tired of that thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
speaking of nine hours, I missed one. Would you rather have long trips or short trips? I'm guessing short trips. Um, yeah, short. Yeah. I, I enjoy takeoffs and landings. Okay. Uh, what is the biggest win in your career so far? Biggest win? Biggest win is... Um, so after my instructor tour right now, so I'm getting ready to leave my, my current squadron. I'm getting a new set of orders. I'm actually going back to the squadron that I was with previously. Uh, so I still get to not have to be on a boat, which, you know, some may call a win. I don't know how I got that lucky, but definitely very grateful. So, yeah, that's cool. Are you still going to be in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, don't take me out of here. Please don't. (laughs) I know, I know. All right, if you are flying on a regional aircraft, would you rather fly on a CRJ or an ERJ? Mm. Yeah, I'm going to have to go with the ERJ. I've got a few friends that would probably not like me if I said CRJ. (laughs) If you could choose between a Piper or a Cessna, like right now you're going, say you're going to Boeing Field, and then you see a Piper, Arrow, or a a nice 182, (laughs) which one are you taking? Piper. Piper, all right, low-wing guy. I like the low-wing. Yeah, yeah. a big low-wing guy. Uh, yeah. Let's see. What is your overall favorite airline? This is the last one. If you could choose one airline, let's say you want to go on a 16-flight business class to, to Bali, wherever you want to go, Australia, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> you could choose any airline you want. What, you choose? what are you choosing? Ooh, any airline. That is really difficult. Um, I haven't been on a heck of a lot, to be quite honest. They're kind of the usual ones, but... Um, I had, uh, I really liked going on Japan Airlines a few times. It's just different. It's just different culture. Yeah, it is different culture for sure. I've never been on Japan Airlines either. I've flown some Chinese domestic airlines. I've flown China or like China Southern Air China, uh, Cathay Dragon or their like subsidiary, their other airline. I can't, I think it's like Dragon oh, yeah, or something yeah. like that, but it's owned by Cathay. Um, those are really the only foreign aircraft that I've been on. And they've all been, they've all had their own share of weird things that have happened (laughs) nothing like unsafe or anything but just like weird things so yeah (laughs) i'm glad the japan airline went out well well casey those are all the rapid fire questions i have for you uh the last question i kind of have for you is just uh give maybe like three tips to someone that's coming up in the aviation world Uh, i know we gave tips specifically to naval academy but just uh aviation in general someone that wants to be a pilot maybe three things you wish you knew or just like three tips to be have a successful career in the aviation world it's a good one. Um, three tips to be successful. Well, let's see. First one is, um, you know, don't be afraid to talk to people. Some of the, the greatest things I've learned and the best relationships I've learned were just hanging out at a small little airport and being able to talk with some of the locals and you know the older people there who've got way more experience and stories than I do. Um, tip number two get into you know some aviation books out there whether it's audiobooks or um you know just normal written novels i think there's some really cool ones out there that can ignite that fire a little bit that are really nicely written um and that'll kind of help you out and then the third one is being in the age of technology right now I look back and I'm like, man, there was just like so much that I did not know growing up because the internet was just coming out. There wasn't a lot of content out there, but, you know, use the internet for its good in order to kind of look up on YouTube how to do certain things or uh, look at articles and 
there's just so much content out there that's available to be read um, and teach yourself. Like, yeah. Definitely agree. YouTube and aviation training with those free, some of the free stuff you get on there can uh, mm-hmm. really save your butt. Yeah. Well, definitely agree. Well, those are good tips. Casey, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate your time and I'm so glad we finally were able to do this. Uh, I think this episode would be great. I mean, we talked about a lot of great things. We kind of went on a sidetrack and straight away from aviation for a little bit, but I think it was it was useful. I think it's, it's good for people to kind of uh, get that motivation and kind of understand how hard things can be and why that's okay. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate you coming on, man. I look forward to this episode coming out and we can debrief a little bit after, but uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Justin. I really, uh, really had a fun time doing this. Thanks for having me. No problem. Anytime. Avi Nation, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Make sure to leave us a review, follow us on Instagram, check us out on Patreon, our website, pilotthepilothq.com. I'm also going to link all those links and also link Casey's Instagram below if you want to follow him. He takes some amazing like I said, day to eight, I'm running late. I need to go to the plane right now. I hope you guys are all having a great day. And as always, happy flying.